0: Good morning, if you can find our seats. Hate to interrupt your conversations, but just uh, if you would open up your scriptures to Exodus chapter 6, verse 14. We're going to hopefully finish up somewhat chapter 6 this week. Um, As you guys are turning there, just a reminder that today at 2 is uh, Coffee with the Pastors. Uh, invite everyone that would like to come. Uh, uh, The lords will be there, at least Daniel. I don't know if the whole family will or not, but where are they? They're somewhere. Uh, They'll be there, and um, we'd love to just have you there. So uh, anyone that wants to come at 2, coffee with the pastors. Um, Yeah, if you would follow along with me as I read chapter 6, starting in verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the son of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, Karmai. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zoar, and Sha'uel. The sons of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Mer-Uri. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libnai, Sham-E-I, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Mar-Uri, Malai, and Mushai. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jacobed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses the years of the life of Amram being 137 years, the sons of Izar, Korah, Nephag and Zichri the sons of Uziel El er, El Zifran, and Sithri Aaron took as his wife uh, Elisheba the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon and she bore him Nadab, Abayu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiaseph. These are the clans of the Korahites Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Put-Ael, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, I thank you, Lord, for a reminder as I read through all these names, Lord, these people that were real people that lived in a time and in a place and a culture totally different than ours, Lord, but people that matter. But I pray as we go through this genealogy, Lord, you open up our hearts to the idea Lord, that individual lives matter because it's all about you. God, help us to see this truth, Lord, that the meta narrative of Scripture brings meaning to our lives. And without it, Lord, life is meaningless. Be with us this morning. In your Son's name, amen. I want to briefly remind us where we're at, and uh, then we're going to jump in this genealogy this morning, and talk about it. Uh, we have been in chapter six, and especially the beginning of chapter six, for at least three weeks now. Chapter six is a response to Moses' prayer at the end of chapter five, where Moses was in a very discouraging, dark time. When he prays to God, he cries out to God, and God responds to Moses to encourage him with a poem. We spent a lot of time discussing this poem. It's a poem meant to encourage Moses. And after this poem, the narrative picks up again, and God tells Moses to go back to Egypt and speak to the Israelites. If you look at verse 9, this is what happens. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Verse 10, so the Lord said to Moses, go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out, of his land. In other words, God, after encouraging Moses, tells Moses to go to Israel. He goes to Israel. Israel doesn't listen, so God says, go to Pharaoh. Verse 12, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and right after this verse 14 there's a genealogy these are the heads of their fathers houses the sons of Reuben and so forth verses 14 through 27 are one long genealogy and then in verse 28 right after this genealogy is over the narrative picks right back up where it left off in the future We'll look at the narrative that surrounds this genealogy, but I really wanted today to take some time and look at this genealogy and really answer this question, why a genealogy? I want to remind us of 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture, that includes genealogies. So let's look at this genealogy. What can we learn from these few verses? Let's look at verse 14 again. Once, once more, it says this. These are the heads of the father of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Hanak, uh, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jackin, Zorah, and Shah, Uel the sons of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Mer-Uri. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. I want to stop here and look at these three verses. Again, verse 14 says this, These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. In other words, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and the oldest son is Reuben. Again, verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Now look at verse 15. The sons of Simeon. Jacob's second oldest son is Simeon. Look at verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Jacob's third oldest son is Levi. First three verses are genealogies of Jacob's three oldest sons. Therefore, these first three verses tell us something they tell us that God has not forgotten his covenant with the nation of Israel. God is about to act, and he's going to act in a miraculous way. We know the plagues are coming. But he's acting because he made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that covenant extends to the 12 sons of Jacob and their families. His first three verses tell us that God remembers his covenant, that God remembers his promises. But it also tells us something else, and I think this is extremely important. It's where I want to focus today. That God has made a covenant with people. God has made a covenant with the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel is made up of people. Both families and individuals. In other words, God sees the individual. Listen, the Bible is all about God. It's all about God from Genesis to Revelation. Every single book, it's all about God. And if you haven't figured that out yet, just keep reading. You'll see it. (laughs) The Bible's all about God. But because it's all about God, individual lives matter. That's counterintuitive, so let me just say it again. The Bible is all about God. And because it's all about God, individual lives matter. The Bible... It's a story. In fact, it's a grand story. It's a narrative. It's a large story. It's a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is this term that we keep using. It's a philosophical term. It really just means a narrative about narratives. It's a large narrative about narratives. A large story about stories. It's a meta-narrative. And because the Bible is a meta-narrative, our individual narratives, our individual stories, our individual lives matter. Surprisingly, because our culture is all about narratives right now, this is actually very countercultural. It's countercultural because one of the tendons of a postmodern philosophy is that there are no meta narratives. It's all about individual narratives or group narratives now. There's no grand story, there's no story outside of us that defines us no grand story that gives meaning to our individual stories or our individual lives. In fact, this term metanarrative uh, was popularized in the 1980s to help define what postmodernism is. Postmodernism denies the existence of metanarratives. Simply, a postmodern worldview says there's nothing outside of us that defines us. There's nothing outside of me, in other words, that tells me, who I am. There's nothing outside of me that tells me what's right or wrong. What a person is. What gender is. What marriage is. What the purpose of life is. There is nothing outside of me that tells me who I am. But there's a problem with this. If all we are are individual narratives, there's nothing outside of us that defines us, if there's nothing outside of me that connects my story to your story then there's nothing that brings meaning to our narratives in other words our individual narratives if there's no large meta-narratives are meaningless in fact this is what Solomon talked about in Ecclesiastes vanity, vanity, all is vanity meaningless, meaningless meaningless it's all meaningless. Because there's nothing to judge our individual lives or stories by. There's nothing to bring meaning to our individual stories. If all there are is your individual story, then your individual story is meaningless. If there is no meta narrative. But in the biblical worldview, we are all a part of a meta narrative. The Bible is a story, and I love the fact that it's a story. Right? It's a large story. It's a story about stories. Think of it. It's a story that spans from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In fact, it's a story that spans from eternity past to eternity future. And it's a story. It's a story that brings meaning to our individual lives. And this is the main point I want to get across today as we look at this genealogy, we are all part of a meta-narrative right? a large story that brings meaning to our individual narratives to our lives when you read a genealogy in scripture, whenever you go through them, I just want you to remember that these were all real people think about that Malai and Mushai were real people they were brothers, in fact, part of Israel, part of the tribe of Levi. They had a dad, Marurai. Look at verse nineteen: the sons of Marurai, Malai and Mushai. Real people with real stories, and their stories matter. Look at verse sixteen: these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations: Gershon, Kohath, and Merurai the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari were real people, sons of Levi. Faithful servants of God. In fact, after Israel came out of Egypt, as we will see after the Exodus, God gave detailed instructions for building a large portable tent called the Tabernacle. It was a, like a large portable temple. They, Israelites will be a nomadic people for a long time in the in the wilderness, and so this temple, this tabernacle is movable and very important to the worship of Yahweh. And the tribe of Levi was put in charge of the tabernacle. Levi's sons were all given s- specific special tasks. In fact, turn to numbers. Keep your hand on Exodus six. We'll be right back there, but turn to numbers, chapter three verse 25. Verse 3, verse 25 says, And the guard duty of the sons of Gershon, and the tent of meetings involved in the tabernacle, the tent with its coverings, the screens for its interests of the tent of meetings, the hangings of, uh, of the court, the screens for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar and its cords, all the service connected with these in other words, Gershon, the son of Levi, and his sons were in charge of the curtains all around the tabernacle. Look at verse 29. The clans of the sons of Kohath were in the, were the camp on the south side of the tabernacle. And verse 31 says this, and, and their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstands, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priests ministered. In other words, Korhath and his sons were in charge of the furnishings within the tabernacle. They were like interior designers. Now look at Numbers chapter 3, verse 36. And they appointed guard duty of the sons of Mari or Mari, involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories, all the service connected with these. Also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. Merari and his sons were structural engineers of the tabernacle. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari were all real people and they were all given a specific task, a calling to take care of the tabernacle. And here's the point. Their stories matter. They matter. They they there may not be as well known as Aaron, Moses, and someone like David. Right? I don't know anyone that's named Gershon. But their stories matter. Because worship of God matters. Because worship of God matters, the tabernacle mattered. Because they are part of a meta-narrative that's bigger than their individual stories. Their individual stories matter. Gershon, Kohath, and Mary I were faithful servants. This is really, I believe, comparable to the gift of service within the church today, right? Men and women that work behind the scenes every week here at Country Oaks. This building was, was really built by members of this church. The stage that just got built, the walls that were put up, the decorations inside, the landscaping outside... Our deacons who work behind the scenes and serve, serve our widows, that put the Lord's Supper together, those that help with childcare right now, Sunday mornings. They're teaching our kids, Juana. Today, in fact, we're having coffee with the pastors. Again, I invite you, 2 o'clock. There's going to be like 20 different high school girls that are going to do all the work for it, serving behind the scenes. And it all matters. It matters because worship of God matters. <laughs> Gershon, Kohath, and Merari were individual servants and their individual stories matter because they are a part of something that was bigger than their individual stories. A grand story, a meta-narrative, a story that's all about God. I'll turn back to Exodus 6, verse 16. Exodus 6, verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levite, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years, the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uzzi- or Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. Just a side note, Amram did marry his aunt. Again, verse 20, Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. At this point, this was allowed. It wasn't until the law of Moses that near relatives were forbidden to marry. And that's Leviticus 18. Look at verse 21. The sons of Izar, uh, Korah, Nephag, and Zikri. Again, verse 21. The sons of Izar, Korah. If Gershon, Kohath, and mer are examples of faithful servants that worked behind the scene. Korah was the exact opposite. Korah was someone who thought way too highly of himself. That wanted to be honored in this life. And this is important. As we go through biblical genealogies... We have to understand that biblical genealogies are uncensored. In fact, you know, the whole Bible is uncensored. I mean, it's hard to find a faithful person in Scripture that doesn't have some major flaw or sin that's pointed out about them. This is true for genealogies. Although it seems like most of Aaron's family was faithful, there are many that weren't. Korah is an example of the latter. Korah was Aaron's cousin. He was a priest. Very important role again in the tabernacle, an honored position within itself, but it wasn't good enough for him. Number 16.1 says this, Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, it's the same person. This is Korah. Verse 2 says this, And they, that's Korah and his followers, rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, Korah is saying something like this, Who are you, Moses, to be in charge of us? Or, Who has put you in charge of us, Moses? Korah didn't want to submit to Moses' authority, but who put Moses in charge of the Israelites? God, right? That's clear in Exodus. In fact, Moses was doing everything he could not to be in charge of the Israelites. God had to pull him and drag him, screaming and kicking Therefore, this rebellion is not just against Moses. This rebellion ultimately is against God. God has made it very clear to everyone that Moses and Aaron were his chosen leaders, miracle after miracle after miracle done through Moses. Therefore, this rebellion is against God. Look at verse 28. It says this, And Moses said, Hereby, you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been on my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. In other words, if if these men just die like normal men, they live a long life and just die of old age, then God hasn't sent me. But, if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol... Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the people who belonged to Korah, and all their goods. So they all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. God stopped that rebellion. <laughs> in dramatic fashion. Listen, not all the people in the genealogy that we have just read were faithful to God. Korah led a rebellion against Moses, and in so doing, really led a rebellion against God. And his story ends in tragedy. But again, even Korah's story matters. It matters because his story is found within a larger story, a meta narrative that defines Korah's story as a tragedy, as rebellion. And even his story is connected to our stories. In fact, listen to 1 Corinthians 10.6. It says this. Now, these things took place. One of these things is Korah's story. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Korah's story is an example to us of what not to do. Again, look at verse 21. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri the sons of Eu, Zael, Zael Mishiel, and El-Zaphran, and Scythri. Verse 23, Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amindadab, and the sister of Nashon. What's interesting here is that Amindadab and Nashon are mentioned, because they're really not a part of the lineage of Aaron or Moses or part of the tribe of Levi, in fact they're only related to Aaron through his wife Elishaba. but you know who lineage they are part of King David therefore both of these men are included in Jesus's lineage found in Matthew Matthew 1 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab. and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Again, look at verse 23. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Hamar. Now, uh, Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's oldest sons, if you follow this genealogy. Now, think about that for a second. That means not only are they Aaron's sons, but they are... Nephews of Moses. Uncle Moses. How cool is that? Talk about a privileged lineage. Family. These two boys grew up surrounded by God and godliness. Examples of godliness. In fact, Exodus 24 verse 9 says this, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu... And 70 of the elders of of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. I don't know how they did that and lived, to be honest. Adab and Abihu are the only two that are mentioned of all these people next to Aaron and Moses. And they had the privilege of seeing God. Really, no Israelite except Moses himself has ever been given a higher privilege. But even with these great privileges, their stories end in tragedy. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 says this, Now the Dab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire. In other words, in the tabernacle as priests, They were given instructions by by God, detailed instructions on how to to perform worship and what what activities and what to do. But instead of doing what God prescribed, they offered unauthorized fire. I like the NASB, it says this offered strange fire. Now there's not really a detail of what that is or description of what that is, besides it was something different than God had commanded. They offered strange fire to the Lord. Which he had not commanded them, and the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. One commentator explained it this way the crux of Nadab and Abihu's sin was approaching God in a careless, self will, inapproachable manner or inappropriate manner, without the reverence he deserves. They did not treat him as holy or exalt his name before the people. The Lord's response was swift and deadly. The strange fire of Nadab and Abihu ignited the unquenchable flames of divine judgment against them and they were incinerated on the spot. I mean, this story is both sobering and terrifying and honestly sad. The story, the narrative of Nadab and Abihu really warns us two things. Again, they're examples verse. God alone has the right to decide how he will be worshiped. We are not free to invent our own forms of worship, but only to worship in the ways he has commanded us. In other words, we should be careful in how we approach worship. That's not just an Old Testament thing. Again, let me read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks of the cup, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks in judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We should have a reverence when we come to the Lord in worship. Second thing we learn and Adab and Abihu is that your title your family history your upbringing will not save you only a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will save you personal trust in him again in Adab and Abihu are real people real stories and their stories matter stories matter because worship of God matters. Because they are a part of a larger story that's all about God, a grand story of redemption, a meta-narrative that brings meaning to their individual lives and individual stories. Look at verse 24. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph, these are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. I love Phineas. He is the last person mentioned in this genealogy, but he may be last. He's definitely not the least. In fact, Phineas could be one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture after studying this week. He really embodies my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and that's 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Phineas was a man who had a zeal for God's glory. Numbers 25, verse 1 says this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, These invited the people to sacrifice um, of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. In other words, Israel engaged in idolatry. But it wasn't just any idolatry. This was pagan worship, and pagan worship is often very sexual in nature. Pagan cultures would have uh, uh, temple prostitutes, and that was part of the way you would worship. This worship of Baal, I just want to, be clear, was performing some perverted act. Verse 3. So Israel yoked himself to Baal Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now the punishment for this type of rebellion and false worship and idolatry was death. And this is clearly stated in the law of Moses for an Israelite. So verse 4, this is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Let me be clear, this is a direct command to the Israelites: put these men to death for their false worship. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, "Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Por." And behold. One of the people of Israel came and brought a Mennonite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meetings. Now, I don't want to get into the details here of what exactly is, is going on or how it's, it came, but there's an implication here that this man took a Mennonite woman and performed a gross sexual act in the sight of Moses— in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, in the entrance of the tent of meetings. Tabernacle. When Phineas, verse 7, when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Verse 10: And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. In other words, God is praising Phineas for having a zeal for God's glory. Phineas took a stand against evil. And he's celebrated for this in, in the scriptures. In fact, there's a psalm that mentions him. Psalm 106, 28 says this, Then they yoked themselves, or then they, that's Israel, then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened. And the plague was stayed. I just love that, that verse, verse 30. And Phineas stood up and intervened. Listen, we need more Phineases in the church. Let me just be clear. Not people that take justice in their own hands. That's not what Phineas did. Phineas was a priest. He was in a place of authority. He acted out in that authority. We as Christians in the church don't have the same authority that Phineas Phineas has but Phineas embodied what Paul commanded the church to be, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 1 Corinthians 16:13. Listen, this is going to sound weird. I want you to hear me out before you jump to conclusions on what I'm saying. I'm tired of Christians being nice. Christianity has embraced niceness. And in doing so, the church has emasculated itself. We are not called to be nice people. Phineas was not nice. Moses was not nice. Just think of Korah. Samuel was not nice. David was... Peter and Paul weren't nice. In fact, Jesus wasn't nice. Nice is not even a biblical word. What do I mean by nice? Because I think it's important. Words matter. Let me give you a a definition of nice. Webster's Dictionary says this, definition of nice, pleasing and agreeable. That agreeable part. Dictionary.com says this, pleasing, agreeable, delightful. Listen, if Jesus was agreeable, he wouldn't have been crucified. If Paul was agreeable, he wouldn't have been his head chopped off. If Peter was agreeable, he wouldn't have got crucified upside down. The etymology of the word nice, that means the study of the origin of this word, means simple or ignorant. In other words, it's someone that agrees just because they don't have the knowledge or intellect or means to do otherwise. They're just nice. That's not the connotation it has today, and that's important. That's where it started from. But the idea of agreeable still is there with the word nice. They're pleasant and delightful, a person that's nice because they never challenge you. They go along to get along, they're nice. Many pastors, churches, and Christians have embraced the idea of niceness to try to be winsome for Christ. Listen, Paul wasn't nice. He wasn't agreeable. He didn't go along to get along. When Paul walked into a city, one of two things happened mass conversion or a riot. Paul wasn't nice, he was a truth teller, he was bold. He was a proclaimer of the gospel. He was a proclaimer of truth. He was a man. We're not called to be nice. Listen, we're called to be kind and loving. Those are biblical words. Kindness is different than the word nice. Kindness is is a biblical word. It's defined as sympathetic, gentle. We're called to be gentle. Jesus was gentle. Gentle. I believe Paul was gentle. Helpful in nature. That's the definition of kindness. The Greek word that's translated kind found in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, means good, loving, merciful. And what does love and mercy do? Love speaks truth. It speaks truth. In fact, it rejoices in truth. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant nor rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. I believe too many Christians are rejoicing at wrongdoing to try to be winsome for Christ. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love is sharing the truth. Ephesians four fourteen says this Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning of, and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. That's what we're not supposed to be doing. That's niceness. Being nice is is being tossed back and forth by by the waves and being blown here and there by every wind of teaching with the purpose of not offending someone. Not taking a stand, because it might be offensive. That's niceness, but it's not love. Ephesians 4.14, then we will no longer be infants. That's not a good thing, being an infant, by the way tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunningness and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love. Proclaiming truth and love go hand in hand. Listen, I've said this a number of times, but I think it's something that Christians need to hear. Truth without love is harsh. You can be truthful without loving a person and it comes off harsh and uncaring we're to be gentle and kind we're to be truthful truth without love is harsh love without truth is not love I think the church has sacrificed truth for the purpose of being nice and therefore they have sacrificed love Niceness is not love. Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as lions. Phineas was as bold as a lion. He was an amazing character. Look at verse 25 again. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pu'ael, and she bore him. Phineas. I love Phineas. Amazing character. In fact, in Numbers 31, he serves as a military commander. That's not surprising. He battled against the Minionites. He remained faithful during wandering, the wandering in the wilderness, so much so that, that God allowed him to cross over and enter into the promised land. That's Judges chapter 20. He even helped bring peace between a couple of tribes of Israel when civil war was about to break out. Joshua chapter 22, meaning he was bold, but he also was a peacemaker. And Phinehas' stories matter. His story matters. He's an example to us of zeal, an example of a godly life, a godly man. An example of passion for God and his glory and his story matters. His story matters, and here's why. Because God's glory matters. (laughs) Phineas' story matters because he's a part of a mega narrative, meta narrative that's all about God. Which leads to a question, and I want to answer this before we end today. Why this genealogy here? In the large story of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture, when you look at the story of, of Exodus, this genealogy just kind of pops up. Why this genealogy here? Most genealogies in Scripture are Christ-centered, meaning following the seed that eventually becomes Christ. Not this one. This genealogy focuses on one family, Levi's family. The seed was passed down to Judah's family. I think twenty six, verse 26 tells us why this genealogy. It says this. These are the Aaron and Moses. Right? He's talking about this genealogy. That's the context. These Aaron and Moses that are mentioned in this genealogy, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel, whom from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from, from Egypt. This Moses Moses and this Aaron. when you look at this genealogy, it's obviously focused on Moses and Aaron. It's really showing their qualifications as leaders. It's just telling their story. It's really important to the ancient reader to know the family history of a character within scripture. And particularly Aaron, right the focus of this this genealogy is Aaron and and his life and his family and it's probably because we're already getting the backstory of Moses in Exodus 2 for 5 so the author is focusing on Aaron just showing his story but this really just brings us back to the main point I've been trying to get across this whole sermon really the main takeaway I want us to understand because of the biblical mega narrative Aaron's story matters Because of the biblical meta-narrative, this large story, Moses' individual story matters. Because of the biblical meta-narrative, individual stories matter, individual lives matter. Meaning your life matters. Meaning your story matters. But that's only because of the biblical meta-narrative. Appearing phrases in our culture like "Black Lives Matter," "Brown Lives Matter," "Blue Lives Matter," "All Lives Matter," but listen—in a secular worldview, they don't. Let me be clear: they don't. In a postmodern worldview, they don't. Any worldview that denies a meta-narrative can't bring meaning to individual lives. Therefore, they don't matter. Even this new cult and religion of social justice movement doesn't have a meta-narrative that gives meaning to individual lives. It's only in a biblical worldview that all lives matter because we're a part of something bigger than us, a meta-narrative, a story that defines us, a story that says every single human being matters. Black, white, brown, yellow, male, female, tall, short, young, old, born, unborn, righteous, unrighteous, Christian, non-Christian, all lives matter because all lives are made in the image of God. And all lives are made for the glory of God, and therefore all lives matter. The biblical med- narrative gives meaning, purpose and value to individual lives, and that's why there's a genealogy here. because individual lives. Dear Heavenly Father, God. Lord, I thank you for bringing purpose in my life. For bringing meaning and value. Not because of what I have done. I didn't create myself. I didn't put myself here in Tehachapi. You created me. You made me in your image I'm a part of a story that's so much bigger than me. It's not about me. It's about you. And because of that, my life matters. Help us to place our thoughts and values within the biblical meta narrative, within the story of scripture, the story of redemption, Lord. Help us to see people the way you see people. Help us to love them by, by speaking truth boldly, gently, Lord, and kind, but boldly. Help the men of this church to lead and to be bold for you. I thank you in your son's name. Amen.